From the same station that invented radio with subtitles. This is the elixir of eternal youth. A worldly story told by a group of travellers. A history of Brisbane, Australia and the world. This is Radio in Colour. A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of Brisbane's four, 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 triple, triple, triple Z. Hello, I'm Ying, your host for episode 9 of Radio in Gala. We tend to view the world we live in as solid and enduring, giving us a sense of security. However, history shows us that the human built world comes and goes, when war, politics, and sometimes nature take radio on human attempts to achieve immortality through what we build. In this episode of Radio in Color, we take a heritage walk through the built and demolished structures that act as recurrent reminders that those who govern us don't always have our best interest at heart. We travel to Angkor Wat in Cambodia, which legend has was built overnight by divine intervention and to cloud land in Brisbane, where a bouncing dance floor was the highlight of many of young Australians, memories of youth. Through the many homes of four triple set, through evictions and Jive, finishing in the democratic, revolutionary theaters of Eastern Europe. song which I actually painted I was very inspired by his I used to throw out a carnival song and uh, I painted this first exhibition you know to a particular record of his it was my musical accompaniment so to speak and I suppose I'd always admired him and there came a chance uh, the publisher of Oz in London was interested in doing posters and uh, so I started uh, uh, this was a collage of a blow-up of a photograph, and uh, this is some of Leonardo's not work, I think. <laughs> and these were done, some by me, but many by a very patient friend who, who with a with a compass. <laughs> this was in the psychedelic period, really, when I was sort of coming under uh, the influence of drugs, marijuana, and things like this. And 
very prevalent in London at the time, uh, which one had first come in contact with in one's journey through Asia. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, Especially Angkor Wat was a big inspiration in, yeah. in that area, yes. Yes, I was very lucky because now it's, it wasn't possible to get there. The Dead Kennedys' Holiday in Cambodia, which incidentally was number four in four triple sets Hot 100 list for 1980, and was number seven as late as 1985. And before, the song you heard from Australian painter Martin Sharp, famous for his iconic album covers painted for Cream and Bob Dylan, describing one of his paintings influenced in equal measures by drugs and the architecture of Angkor Wat. The Dead Kennedys song retained resonance for many young people disaffected by the alienating privilege of affluence in Western countries during the 80s stock market boom. The rise of genocidal dictatorships like that of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia were partly an effect of gross inequality under capitalism that favored the West. The Khmer Rouge executed as many as two million people during the reign of Pol Pot, Westerners like the artist Sharp, who traveled to Southeast Asia during the 80s for the drug culture, were largely oblivious of the inequality their privilege was causing. Beginning in the 9th century, the Khmer Empire ruled the bulk of Southeast Asia. The great Hindu temple Angkor Wat and its surrounding cities in what is modern-day Cambodia were the economic and religious centre of this bustling empire. In the evening, by the light of a torque, the four-foot-high face of the temple's 12th-century founder, Jayavarma VII, looks out from the monsoon-stained spires. This was the Sanskrit name taken by a Khmer prince who had cast off the Hinduism of his ancestors. 
venerated in the main Angkor temple in favor of Buddhism. Here he is still, staring out into the night, with his full lips and firm chin, broad-nosed and prominent forehead, his expression pensive and philosophical, a man both monk and monarch. Jayavarma built his temple in the 12th century, the same century that brought the Turks to India, the beginning of the end of the long period of Indian cultural influence throughout the region that had started 700 years earlier in Afghanistan at Mest Anyak. By this time, Buddhism had come to flourish across Afghanistan and Central Asia. Sanskrit, the classical Indian literary language, had become throughout Southeast Asia the language of court, government, and literacy. The five towers of Angkor Wat were named after Maud Meru, the home of the gods believed in Indian myth to lie at the center of the world. By the 15th century, the Khmer Empire and the temples of Angkor fell into ruin. The 15th century would not be the last time people would approach the sculpted citadel with malevolent intentions. Next up, we hear about the Camer Rouge, as discussed in 4 Triple Set in 1995. In 1975, the Vietnamese left, won the war in Vietnam against the Americans. The Americans, um, well, they had withdrawn most of their troops a couple of years earlier, all of their troops, in fact, except for the advisors, but they were still supporting the old regime, and um, that was defeated in 1975. In Kampuchea, next door, a very radical leftist government led by a man called Pol Pot came to power. The reports that were already being made at the time that, that he was in power and have been to, I think, a great extent substantiated suggest that he was a, a genocidal, well, maniac. Estimates of how many people were killed under his regime and estimates of, of how much other damage killing of animals, um, destruction of, of a whole economic infrastructure, bridges, all that sort of thing, vary greatly according to political persuasion, but it was certainly large. It was, um, it was a dreadful regime. The Vietnamese considered that it was a threat to their security because it had a, cr a rather close alliance with China. And in the end of 1978 and the beginning of 1979, they invaded Kampuchea. They overthrew this man and replaced him with a government which was sympathetic to them, to the Vietnamese, led by Heng Sam Rin. Now, what happened after that was the real problem. Instead of heaving a sigh of relief at the departure of Pol Pot, the Chinese, and later ASEAN and the Western powers, decided to try and continue supporting him. They supported his guerrilla attempts to come back to power against the Vietnamese. The Vietnamese reacted by saying, we will not withdraw our troops from, from Kampuchea until there is a guarantee that Pol Pot will not come back to power. In the middle of 1982, um, the ASEAN countries, and especially the ASEAN countries, but also with the support of China and uh, the US, got Pol Pot to enter into a coalition uh, with uh, two other partners, one a right-wing partner led by Son San and the other a neutralist one, um, led by Sihanouk, with, and Sihanouk was declared the president of this uh, coalition, um, which is still called Democratic Kampuchea. 
Now, the Vietnamese argued that this made no difference to the situation because if they were to withdraw their troops, that coalition would win, and if the coalition won, the coalition would instantly break down because it has no reason for existence other than being against the Vietnamese. And if it broke down, there would be yet another war in Kampuchea, which the Khmer Rouge, that's Pol Pot people, would win because he's the militarily the strongest. Kampuchea has indeed grown in prosperity since the occupation by, by the Vietnamese and that there is no longer genocide happening, although the, there, there have been quite serious reports of quite serious human rights violations by the Vietnamese. That I can accept, but it's certainly not on any scale by comparison with, the, with Pol Pot, and I think that it is due to the fact that they continue to be harassed by Pol Pot and by, and by the others. Um, and by the fact that it's just not a stable situation. In 1979, Vietnam invaded Cambodia in a widely criticized intervention that aimed to stop the atrocities being committed by the Khmer Rouge against their own people. A civil war ensued until the Khmer Rouge could be comprehensively routed. With armed conflict finally coming to an end in the early 90s, with a peace settlement that Australia, Thailand and other countries helped negotiate. Through this period, and even late into the 1990s, Angkor continued to be threatened, and as is the case with people and build world at times of political turmoil. In 2001, in Afghanistan, the Taliban dynamited statues of the Buddha in the valley of Banimar. Bamiyan. Buddhas older than Angkor but part of the same history of Buddhist expansion and in 2015 ISIS has been destroying and looting Syria's 2,000 year old antiquities and their ambition to create a new world. Around the world few political groups have pursued a more ruthless plan to create a world from scratch than the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia in the 70s. Set on returning Cambodia to an entirely self-dependent state, Pol Pot took over the kingdom on 1st January 1975. The Khmer Rouge regime desecrated many of the nation's holy sites and oversaw the deaths of between 1 and 3 million people. The effects of Pol Pot policies can still be felt in Cambodia today. It has set the nation's development back several decades. Though Pol Pot aimed to abolish all cultural forms and start civilization anew, there was one exception for his architectural-less new civilization, and that was Angkor Wat. These buildings had a useful nationalist symbolism with which to bind people to the Khmer Rouge regime, while at the same time being distinct from a living culture marked for destruction. We hear now from historian Patrick Jory, a senior lecturer in Southeast Asian Story at the University of Queensland Story Department, who explains the events of the period, why Pol Pot didn't mess around much with Anchor, and why we'd do well to approach this period of Cambodian history with a fresh perspective. A lot of these ruins, you know, that as as everyone knows, they'd lie, they'd, they'd lay in um, 
in ruins for, for, for centuries. The French tried to reconstruct a few of them, um, including Angkor, uh, in the, the, the colonial period. A little bit was done during the Sihanouk period, but, but not a great deal. Um, but but yeah, since since nineteen nineties, the sort of French have come back, and other you know, archaeologists, and, and quite a bit has been done since then. So so it, it's um, and the, as you know, they're sort of discovering new stuff all the time. Have you ever been to Angkor? Yeah. It's just absolutely incredible. I mean, I I I've been shamefully for the first time only a couple of years ago. I'd seen all the pictures. I mean, I'm a Southeast Asian. I should have gone there a long time ago. But when I went there, it is just just blows you away. It's just absolutely amazing, and not just Angkor Wat, but you know Angkor Tom and all the other. It's just incredible, quite remarkable. It's yeah, very special. There's a famous temple uh, on the border between uh, Cambodia and Thailand to the north, uh, Priya Vihear, and that did sustain some damage in the recent um, skirmishes between the Thai and Cambodian militaries uh, two or three years ago. Now, actually, we, we took some students up there to, to Angkor Wat and uh, to um, Priya Vihear, and and they'd show us where um, you know, tie mortars or, or bullets had, had damaged the, the state. I mean, not, not huge damage, but there were you know, visible sort of bullet holes. During the, the Sihanouk period, and actually even early from the French period, but particularly during the Sihanouk period, Angkor Wat becomes a symbol of the greatness of Cambodia once upon a time. Um, and this, this is a country that uh, had been, you know, we squeezed on two sides before the coming of the French by the Vietnamese had actually claimed a lot of territories which were previously part of the Angkorian Empire. And to the west, the, uh, the, the Thais had basically colonised the western part of Cambodia. They fought a, a terrible, terribly destructive war uh, with the Vietnamese in the 1830s, the Thais and the Vietnamese fought for control over Cambodia. So it's, it's a country with a a glorious past, but a quite quite a shameful present, I guess. You know, they were at risk of being swallowed by the Vietnamese of the Thais, and they were almost glad to have the French kind of arrive on the scene to, to have some protection against um, against these two more powerful states. But then you get obviously you get anti-colonial movements in, in the twentieth century as well. So it's a country with which which has a, a very traumatic modern history but a glorious you know, classical history centred on Angkor. So Angkor becomes a symbol of Khmer identity. And the Khmer Rouge, as, as radical as they were, they were, you know, first and foremost, you know, Khmer nationalists uh, with, with great pride in that, and a sort of a racial pride, actually, in that Khmer heritage. So Angkor, you know, it meant something for them as well. You know, when we talk about the Khmer Rouge, it's, it reminds me of ISIS, actually. And the whole Cambodian uh, conflict at the time, so very, it's very reminiscent, or the, the Syrian conflict now is reminiscent of the Cambodian conflict back then. You know, like during the Cold War, when Southeast Asia was a, a battleground of, of, the, of the superpowers, you know, the Middle East is also similarly a battleground. I think you need to understand that the Cambodian crisis or the Cambodian problem within the context of, of the Cold War, these, these, these incredible rivalries that were played out in Cambodia. And also, I mean, I think it's often forgotten the, you know, the, the American secret bombing of Cambodia, which killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, which, you know, conveniently sort of overlooked because of the, um, the horrific events of the Khmer Rouge regime. Um, they are, they're influenced by this radical Maoist philosophy of destroying this uh, so-called feudal control over Cambodia and creating a, a worker's state. After the Vietnamese invade Cambodia uh, in December 1978 and, and occupy it and then continue to occupy it for the, for the following decade, Vietnamese minorities in Cambodia had been um, had killed by the Khmer Rouge regime. 
and the Viet- Vietnam at that time was supported by the Soviet Union. So this was seen as, um, you know, within the Cold War context as the expansion of Soviet influence into, into Southeast Asia, which had to be resisted at all costs. And it so happened that the, the fighting force that was best equipped to fight the Vietnamese occupation was the Khmer Rouge. And this led to some international powers, including the United States, um, China, Thailand as well, supporting the Khmer Rouge in their uh, fight against the Vietnamese occupation. So having just sort of carried out a mass killings of the Cambodian population, which some people would determine genocide, the international community is actually supporting this, uh, these fighters. By uh, the late 1980s, the Soviet Union is economically in dire straits. The perestroika policy is being followed, policy of op- opening up the Soviet Union, and eventually the Cold War is coming to an end. So Vietnam sort of sees the writing on the wall, uh, and it decides to withdraw its troops in, uh, in 1989. The next generation 
In this special documentary series to mark the 40th anniversary of 4ZZZ, we tell the story of Brisbane City through interviews and recordings of people who remembered our visible and invisible heritage of that era. In the minutes ahead, we'll hear about demolition of one of the most deeply loved live music venues in history of Brisbane. That is, of course, Cloudland. You'll also hear from Tony Knife, an activist and musician who is particularly well known in Brisbane for his single Pig City about the political impediment of our great city. Certainly Cloudland uh, gets a mention there because um, Cloudland was an incredible venue. Um, you may not uh, be aware of what it was like, but it was a, a dance hall that was built, uh, I think, before the Second World War, but came to prominence during the Second World War with all the uh, dances that were organised for the servant. It had a sprung floor, and when you had uh, you know thousands of punks pogoing up and down, it literally would be moving uh, an inch or more up and down. It was like being on a trampoline. It was, you, you couldn't uh, you couldn't fight it. You just had to go with it. It was sort of an oval shape, and the stage in the shorter direction had a big sort of gallery area upstairs. It was it was a wonderful venue. Took a walk down the Queen Street Mall. For the dust, hung around listening to the capitalists and all their filthy plans. Demolition, demolition, history violence. Demolition, demolition, history
uh, this one's really powerful to me. It's, um, maybe a number of a lot of people my age. It's a photo of the old Cloudland Ballroom. Um, that archway, the big archway there in the middle. Um, you could see that from uh, on top of Bowen Hills, uh, and. Uh, it was a ballroom, Cloudland Ballroom. It was significant to the Brisbane community as an entertainment space back through the 40s and 50s. Buddy Holly played there, amongst other people. Um, and it was a place, Triple Z ran some gigs there as well in the uh, early 80s and some significant acts, uh, perhaps most significantly The Clash playing there in 1982 was a huge event, which also drew almost as many police as it did um, crowd. Uh, police liked to go to hang outside rock concerts in those days particularly ones that Triple Z put on um, so it was, a, it was a significant venue and a lot of people would have had you know, great memories of it but it's also notorious for having been torn down uh, overnight um, without warning uh, with the connivance of the state government um, Why was it being uh, torn down? It was torn down so developers could put mm-hmm. um sell it off for, for development basically so um, it's that and a couple of other development, a couple of other iconic Brisbane places that were torn down sort of symbolises uh, again part of the what was so bad about the Bjelke Peterson, the National Party regime at that time, just that total lack of accountability and just destroy our heritage um, and I, I think this one just uh, really cut a lot of people it certainly really still gets to me that they could destroy something that had so many memories that had such heritage value and just wipe it out overnight and they did you know deliberately did it in the dead of night because they knew if they started to do it in the daytime people would come out in their thousands to try and stop it and they would have protested because that that's what happened when they tore down another Bellevue hotel in the city um, uh, heaps of protests and trying to stop it happening so this one they just did it literally um, uh, you know at midnight so that uh, people couldn't try to save it okay so what from what you're saying actually the the public had a big reaction to everything that the government was doing with regard to historical building because I could understand that to me from what you're saying that was considered a historical building so what was the public reaction when the cloud line was destroyed by the government overnight oh there was outrage Um, in fact they did it in the dead of night Um, you know the contempt and the desecration there was was outrage you know as a government had been in power a long time they thought they could do anything and you know literally receiving money in brown paper bags and like from developers so that's what they were driven by The other venue that's also disappeared was the University of Queensland 
refectory, and, and that's that's another thing. Not only did uh, Fort Triple Z get kicked out of the university, but there was there's been a lot of um, social engineering through through actual physical engineering of the built space at Queensland University. The the main hall of the refectory was a huge room, uh, and I remember at the time of the um, uh, spring boxes we were just talking about before. One of the things that happened because of all that and the violence of the police outside us that about some 3,000 uh, students uh, met in that refectory, had a meeting and actually voted to go on strike while they discussed the issues inside that refectory. And, and of course, uh, then and later on, it was a, an incredibly great venue for bands as well. A lot of, I saw a lot of, good, lot of good bands there, overseas bands and local bands, uh, Laughing Clowns, um, you know, um, pe- people like Midnight Oil and whole lot of others played in that space over time they gradually divided that space up so that it could no longer be used in that way Um, just as when you go to the outside of that refectory area in the old but going back to the beginning of the 70s um, when we're looking at the moratorium movement people used to hold um, uh, forums there and they'd be spilling back across the um, drive towards towards the library and so on so eventually of course they had to put a whole lot of trees and everything in the middle of that so that people couldn't be there so then of course people went into the courtyard behind that and that used to be the space for forums so eventually that space all got divided up with tables and chairs so you couldn't get the same number of people in there there was nothing accidental about all that it was all part of a while a campaign while there was a strong radical movement at the university of queensland out of which um Four Triple Z sprang. There was always a counter movement. There were always people doing everything they could to uh, stymie everything of that persuasion uh, and make it as ineffective as possible. I don't think. I think when you remember history, you've got to remember all sides of history, not just the uh, the ones that are closest to yourself or the ones that you uh, might be more favourable towards. And and that is a part of the story. Uh, people. Uh, created their own communities, they created their own activities and gradually these things get whittled away at and drawn back in uh, and drawn into the mainstream and people have to reinvent these things all over again. At 4.17 on the morning of Wednesday the 14th of December 1988, the Queensland University Student Union closed down Radio 4 Triple Z. Four members of the National Party dominated union executive and four security guards served a notice of eviction on the announcers. They were told if they did not cease broadcasting immediately, they will be forcibly removed. The station was locked and guarded by members of the union executive and the security firm.
Within half an hour, two other 4ZZZ workers restarted broadcasting at the transmitter site via a superscope. Emergency broadcast number three, this one is. Uh, you are listening to 4ZZZ-FM Public Radio 102.1 on the dial. However, we are not transmitting from our studios in St. Lucia. Only because there's people that are stopping us from doing so. Yes, but, but we've been sneaky this morning. Oh. Oh, hello. It's Donna Baines from 4ZZZ here. Mm -hmm. I was just ringing to see um, what you thought about what's happened at 4ZZZ over the this past week. Have you heard about it? No, I haven't. I've just, I just arrived back from Japan a few hours ago. Oh, right. Well, uh, what happened? Which base? The Student Union at the University of Queensland. Oh, yes. They came in and told the announcers who were there that they had to leave straight away, took the records off and basically took us off air. So we had to um, race up to the transmitter and start broadcasting from there. They wouldn't let us back into the building. They decided that they they wanted to evict us and... Well, I suppose they thought you'd had a fair go and, um, and um, they must have been in, in some position of control. They gave us absolutely no notice at all and just decided well, to come in at four o'clock in the morning. You've had a pretty good run for a long time, haven't you? studied psychology in Brisbane in the 1980s at Queensland University or oh, I will show you The 4ZZZ of 1988 was not the same as the 4ZZZ of 1978. The station had long lost its early luminaries such as John Woods and Marion Wilkinson and while still sticking it to the Bielke-Peterson government like few others, it no longer had the ability to retain a paid newsroom. Those who remained worked long hours and faced burnout at every turn. David Lennon was one of the few dedicated volunteers keeping the station running. He recalls those times. Yeah, there was a combination of a few things. General apathy, the subscriptions was very low. There was this whole threat uh, uh, under attack feeling that Triple Z felt for the previous dozen years was not as dramatic, so people took the station for granted. And also, unfortunately, the people that were working there sort of slacked off a lot and eventually didn't turn up. So there was only about uh, four or five of us volunteers really sort of holding the place together at the time. And we were all pretty close to burnout because it was a lot of responsibility I mean, running a radio station at the best of times is stressful enough, but trying to run a radio station that is totally broke and uh, 
it makes it a lot worse. So, yeah, the whole Victoria Brazil eviction was, as far as I was concerned, was a godsend. It, uh, it basically started the whole sympathy with the audience. People realised what it would be like, Brisbane without Triple Z, and that concept was totally unthinkable. The eviction David talks about there came early on the morning of December 14 that year. For the first time in living memory, the conservative side of student politics had won the elections. After first saying she wanted to work with the station, Student Union President Victoria Brazil issued an eviction notice to Zed's few crusty hangers-on. Notice. To the directors, managers, servants and employees of Creative Broadcasters Limited and of Media Facilities Proprietary Limited and to all persons associated with Radio 4 Triple Z. Whereas the University of Queensland Union is in lawful possession of the union building situated at the University of Queensland at St Lucia, I, Victoria Brazil, President and Chief Executive Officer of the University of Queensland Student Union, do, by this notice, prohibit any person from entering that part of the union building currently known as the offices of Radio 4ZZZ. Any person acting in contravention of this prohibition will be trespassing upon the property of the University of Queensland Union and will be made the subject of civil proceedings at the suit of the University of Queensland Union. Signed, Victoria Brazil, President, 14th of December, 1988. It was literally a wake-up call for Triple Zers and station supporters. I was sleeping nicely in my bed. It was around four o'clock in the morning. I got a phone call, and uh, I thought, "Oh, well, who's this?" It's either the cops or Triple Z. <laughs> Luckily, it was the latter. It was the graveyard announcer, quite panicky, saying that they've just been kicked out of the station. Apparently, Victoria Brazil and a couple of uh, her thugs or co-conspirators in the union, as well as uh, some hired security guards, had uh, raided the station at 4am and literally marched the uh, graveyard announcers out of the premises. So, yeah, they uh, gave me a ring. Within 10 minutes, I was at the station. They wouldn't let me into the place at all, but for some reason they'd let the graveyard announcer in, so I instructed him to... I gave him a list of things to get. There was a super scope, and for people from uh, this century, <laughs> a super scope is like the uh, 20th century's version of an iPod. It's a, it's a portable tape recorder with the constitution and tenacity of a brick. Uh, it was a very sturdy thing. It was basically a cassette recorder. That and uh, tapes and batteries and a few other things, microphones. And uh, I think uh, Anita Earl had turned up then. We all got in my car and... I think we pick up Gordon, actually, Gordon Fletch. He was sort of giving um, quasi-legal advice on the situation. And we were recording emergency broadcasts going up to the transmitter because, uh, luckily, one of the technicians, Alan Harriman, had the foresight to set up an emergency broadcast situation in the transmitter. I'm not sure if it was due to seeing the writing on the wall and this sort of thing happening or, or if it was just a, a practical 
backup scenario for if the microwave link ever died, you know, we'd have some access to the actual broadcasting. Either way, we did have access. We got to the transmitter and we had recorded some emergency broadcasts on the way up. And, um, yeah, we basically had this cassette recorder set up. So we played these emergency broadcasts directly on air. Now, back at the station, the big monitors that are in the foyer don't play what's coming out of the studio. They play what's coming off the air because it's a sort of a security thing to check that if you go off air, you know straight away. So they heard silence for the last hour or so and then... uh, suddenly they hear these emergency broadcasts coming out of the big speakers and uh, from all the reports running around like chooks without a head, wondering what the hell was going on. But uh, that was the, uh, our first victory. We were basically informing the Triple Z audience what was happening and pleading with them to come to the station and support the station in whichever way we, they could. We weren't sure what was happening or how they could support, but we just wanted people and as many as possible to come. But while David and others were up at the transmitter trying to keep the station on air, supporters were trying to keep control of the building itself. Author John Birmingham, then a freelancer in his early 20s, was at the scene as the crowd began to swell. I was living just off campus at the time, somewhere over in Indrapilly, that um, that wasn't too far away from campus. And I, I got up one morning and I flicked on the news and it was just, it was all over the news. Uh, Angry scenes at Queensland University today after the students' union closed down radio station for Triple Z. Staff and supporters of the Radical FM station grouped outside the campus studio to protest the closure, alleging harassment by the union. The union served an eviction notice early today claiming the studio was a fire and health risk. Police were called when Triple Z supporters stormed the building and resumed broadcasting, powered by their own generator. No arrests were made, and the union is now negotiating with station staff. I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And I was just at that point, quite early on in my, my freelance life, I was working for Rolling Stone and I think maybe Playboy and a couple of sports magazines, but I wasn't making a huge amount of money. I was basically just getting whatever stories I could into print. And um, that struck me as a, a really obvious pick for Stone because um, I knew about Zed, obviously, even though I didn't listen much to them. And uh, I figured, oh, you know, it's Queensland. There'll be a bit of, uh, a bit of biff. Um, it'll make a, a good little piece. So I headed over pretty early in the morning and I would have been there in the first hour or so, I think. And um, by sort of your account in Andrew Stafford's book, mm. there was quite a bit of biff? <laughs> it was a heap of biff, mate. It was, well, you know, it was Queensland. There wasn't a huge amount of physical confrontation early on in the day because so many people turned up that they just rolled in and, and like reclaimed the studios. Uh, and they were in there most of the day. And, you know, there was the usual um, the usual rubbish everyone goes on with in, in those days. I think the international socialists turn up pretty quickly and, you know, this is it, the revolution's starting. Oh, my God, oh, my God, I can't believe it. And, yeah. And then the uh, the executive, the student executive, the young libs and nats, decided they weren't having any of that rubbish. So they got the cops out in the afternoon. And the um, there was all this this mythology about UQ uh, through the eighties that the you know it was federal territory and the police weren't allowed on. It was all bullshit. Um, the cops came on. There was quite a few of them. It's been a while since I've thought about it, but you know, lower end was probably about twenty five or thirty of them. Upper 
upper estimate might have been about 50 or 60. And um, they gave us like an hour to get everybody out. And, um, you know, most people with half a brain got out because they knew what was coming. But uh, some of the, the younger activists, like actual activists, um, they, they weren't so much in IS. Those guys tried to avoid getting arrested. But there was a bunch of kids from a group called Socialist Action or something like that who considered themselves way more hardcore and, and they hung around. Anyway, so that was when things turned pretty physical because, you know, thirty somewhere between 30 and 50 cops busted into this place to, um, to take down about, I don't know, maybe a dozen or so political activists. And um, it wasn't like a riot in Russia or the Ukraine or anything like that. No one got killed, but, uh, you know... For Brisbane in the 80s, it'd do. While the occupation began, a few resourceful people ensured the station was able to stay on air and continue broadcasting, as David Lennon and the team worked from Mount Cutha. I wasn't at the station at that time. I was still at the transmitter site, but there was all sorts of shenanigans. People were occupying the student union offices, trying to sabotage that and demand that Triple Z get their radio station back. Eventually, there were so many people that uh, around midday or around one o'clock, the, there were so many people, they just stormed the studios and there was nothing that the student union or the few hired security guys could do about that. So the people got the radio station back. The student union thought at the time that they could kill it just by killing the power to Triple Z, but uh, being as tenacious as we are, we've had um, backups and one of them was a, a generator. And there was a bit of a problem with batteries, I'm led to believe. And uh, I think some they uh, collected a few car batteries from people that were there at the station and um, started the generator up. And from that point on, we had the radio station back. And it was Victory Triple Z, the Student Union Zero. And as was the style at the time, what began as an occupation turned into a bit of a party that raged for weeks on end. It looked like fun. I had nothing else to do. Like I was, I was starting my freelance writing career at that point, and I was always on the lookout for a story. I lived just off campus, so getting to and from was no big deal. There was uh, there was a lot of hot ladies hanging around, and I thought that looked good. And uh, you know, there's a lot of drinking. Uh, you, know, you could score some dope or some mushrooms if you you knew who to ask. It it just looked like fun. I mean, that's one of the things that. People sort of looking in from the outside forget. Like a, a lot of these sort of political movements, they're uh, you know obviously they're they're youngsters and you know they're very 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 serious about what they're doing. It's very important. You smash the power of the state, etc. etc. But it's also it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I hung out for a while. After the eviction day, we didn't trust the student union, no matter what they said or claimed they were going to do. So there was, uh, in effect, an occupation at the station. There was at least 40 people at the station 24 hours a day, day and night, to ensure that an attempted eviction could never happen again. And that went on for several weeks. I was very much involved in that, staying at the station whenever I could. (laughs) Actually, in some ways, it was a a three-week party, and it was literally the best three weeks of my life. The feeling of solidarity, the feeling of after all that hard work that we were putting in that seemed like we were knocking our heads against the wall, we just had had all this support. So I was just in a state of euphoria. It was fantastic. And um, the occupation stayed until there was a consultation process between the three major parties. That was 4ZZZ, 
the uh, university and the student union. Eventually, it was agreed that Triple Z would leave, but on a bit more realistic time frame. It was agreed that we'd leave by a certain date. The practicalities of that was, you know, we really needed a bit more time, but in effect, we did what we did and we had to move. But that's not the end of the story, as anyone with any familiarity with the station in its current form would know. It had become apparent the station would have to move, but thanks to the backlash and political ineptitude of the student union leadership, 4ZZZ was able to negotiate an exit plan on much more reasonable grounds. Tenuously holding on to life, Zed actually broadcast from a caravan on Mount Kutha for a little while before temporarily homing down in Tawong, at a venue David Lennon describes as horrible and cramped. And while the whole affair was an ordeal for all concerned, in retrospect, David says it was probably a long time coming. If you use that uh, evil E-word, eviction, back at the time, you know, we would have very put our backs up and and, um, denied that we were evicted. You know, we left voluntarily, but in reality we were. I mean, we didn't have much choice in the matter, but it was necessary. If we stayed at the station, we wouldn't have had the respect and the and the skills to continue uh, going because we would have had to have le- left a- eventually. And um, I think it was a necessary step. And um, we eventually weaned ourselves off that feed from the student union. Even though we weren't getting paid from it, we, we were very much dependent on the resources. So. It was a very necessary step, and Triple Z is now totally independent uh, community broadcaster. What happened to 4ZZZ? We put out a, re- a release this morning, um, and, uh, well, I, now our view is that uh, it's not really a very good thing for uh, people who are going to be future leaders of the community and looked up in that way by the community to uh, go around closing down radio stations and appointing what could amount to a censor to the uh, university newspaper. The union has attacked Triple Z. Now, there have been a number of attacks um, by uh, the political parties on both what they view as the extreme left-wing and the extreme right-wing. Do you think this is a growing danger to Australia? Uh, Well, the whole idea of... of media freedom is that uh, people in the community can make up their own minds about what's extreme and what isn't. And I mean, it's not, it's not logical to say that uh, a left-wing extreme or a right-wing extreme are wrong and something in the middle is necessarily right. I mean, a correct view of the world could happen anywhere along the line between left and right. It's, it's up to people in the community to make up their own mind and they're entitled to have uh, a diversity of information. Secret you're keeping There's an old 
and that's the build history of music in the 1980s. You've been listening to episode 9 of Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Brisbane's community broadcasting station 4ZZZ. We acknowledge the financial support of the Community Broadcasting Fund and of our production partners, Brisbane radio stations 4EB and 4ZZZ, as well as the State Library of Queensland's The Edge, which teaches digital skills to Queenslanders of all walks of life. Radio in Colour is made by a team of young producers from 15 different countries. You can learn more about our work on the 4ZZZ website, 4ZZZFM.org.au. This episode of Radio in Colour was recorded at the Edge Studios in the State Library of Queensland, as well as at Radios 4EB and 4ZZZ. This show was produced by Kim Stewart, Caroline Kaliaba, and Stephen Rigal. Ni Adpo Yibi is our sound engineer and Blair Martin is our trainer. Thank you also to Ying, Sam and David for hosting this episode. And to our guests, Tony Neep and Andrew Bartlett. Find out more about Radio in Colour at 4ZZZ.org.au. Thanks for listening.